Well, come on, make some noise if you're glad to be in church today. Come on. Welcome to my least favorite weekend of the year, spring forward, St. Patrick's Day, and a little bit of snow. <laughs> but look around you. You are the committed ones. You're the faithful few, and you are loved deeply by God, and it is great to worship with you. Those who are with us live and in person, if you're watching online, on television, if you're joining us from one of the hundreds of prisons all across the nation, can we put our hands together for all of our friends and family joining us, both near and far? And for those of you who were with us this past Thursday night, can we just acknowledge what a night we had on Thursday night? Our first ever live uh, worship recording, we recorded 14 songs on Thursday night, and I'm telling you, uh, this room was on fire. The Holy Spirit was powerful and present, and uh, there is a new sound emerging from this house, and I am so glad to be a part of it. Anybody glad to be a part of this church and what God is doing? So proud of of the team and just what a historic and unforgettable night that was. And and you'll start to uh, see those songs being released soon over the next few weeks and months. Just a quick heads up, though, as we are uh, nearing the end of a series that we've been in now for six weeks called How to Sink a Submarine. We have just two weeks left to this series. Two weeks from today, Dr. Andy Yarborough is going to be back with us. Anybody excited to see Dr. Andy again? He is one of the most talked about and requested guests we have ever had. He is a Christian clinical psychologist, and I cannot wait to share with you what he and I have been working on together two weeks from today. And then, of course, the week after that, April 2nd, we celebrate 12 years as a church. So April 2nd, that weekend is going to be an exciting weekend. As we look back and we look ahead, and then, of course, the week after that, if you can believe it, it is Easter already. And, of course, we're going to be running Easter services the week of Easter on on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So just giving you a quick heads up as to what's to come. Today, we're going to turn the page just a little bit and actually dial it up a notch or two because this weekend and next, we're going to be looking at what are according to Gallup and just about every other study that has ever been done on the topic um, of marriage in particular, we're going to be looking at the number one and number two reasons for divorce. Are you glad you came to church still? Come on. (laughs) Like, wow, we're saving the best for last. Now, before you tune out, just know this, that in a church like ours, I am well aware that just... About half of the people here are married. The other half are not married yet, but most in that other half want to be married at some point in their life. There is always a very small percentage of people in every space that would say today, you know what, I have no intention of being married. I have no desire to be married. And that's a very small percentage of people. And even within that very small percentage of people, there are still those within that group that will change their mind at some point in their life. So I'm talking to a lot of people this weekend and next, though this is not a marriage message. So don't tune out just because if you think your marriage is already perfect or you're not married yet, this is not a marriage message, though 
It will help you in your marriage today or in the future, as will this message help you in life. As it has to do with, again, the the number today, the number two reason that is caused for divorce, but it doesn't begin when you get married. It actually begins early on in life, in your single years. Now, how many of you know what the number one reason for divorce is in marriage? Anybody want to just yell it out? Number one, the number one, it's infidelity, it's infidelity. The number two reason for divorce is, say it, money, money, money. Money arguments, according to Ramsey Solutions and Gallup, are the second leading cause of divorce behind infidelity. And what I want to do is I want to give you just a few statistics that probably aren't going to actually surprise you, but these are quite interesting. Nearly two-thirds of all marriages actually begin with debt. So two-thirds of marriages are already beginning with a financial limp. One-third of those who say they've argued with their spouse about money admit to hiding a purchase from their spouse because they knew their spouse would not agree. If that's you, raise your hand. Say amen. Come on. (laughs) 63% of couples with $50,000 or more in debt say they feel anxious when talking about money. Ought to be no surprise there, right? You, You should feel anxious, maybe just a little bit. The the larger a couple's debt, the more likely they are to say that money is an issue in their relationship. So again, go figure, right? That's not not a surprise. Particularly when you uh, take the, the larger a couple's debt and you join that with a very low amount of communication within that relationship, as it pertains to money, um, studies show that leads to financial stress and money arguments that tend to end Badly, And again, this isn't rocket science, but I think we would agree that if it were an easy to fix issue, it would not be the second leading cause for divorce. Amen. Like, like I didn't share with you anything really that you didn't know. Nothing ought to surprise you so much today, but if it were so easy to fix, then there wouldn't be so many marriages and people. You might be single and you've got a whole lot of debt and you're dealing with that and you are feeling like you are sinking and that's because you are, right? You are a sinking ship. You've taken on more than you were meant to. I want to share with you just a few more uh, findings. This from a, a law firm that specializes in family law and in divorce law. And what they've done, because they've worked with so many people who are seeking divorce, they've come up with the 10 most common ways that money affects divorce rates. These are not in your notes, so you might just want to take screenshots or just quick jot it down if you can. If, if you're married and you want to sink your marriage fast, then really lean into this. Or if you're married or you want to be married and you want your marriage to last, then, then remember uh, these 10 most common ways that money affects divorce rates. Number one, when you have opposing ideas on how to handle money. So you have two different viewpoints, two different financial philosophies, goals, good luck, you're, you're on a sinking ship. When, when you have mismatched financial priorities, like you're a saver and she's not, or she's a saver and you're not, and you've already said I do before you've discussed your financial priorities, philosophies, goals, you are literally beginning your marriage with one or perhaps two strikes against you. When you have credit card debt, And in particular, if only one of you has credit card debt and the more responsible partner is the one paying off your credit card debt, that does not tend to bode well in most marriages. And if there's no plan to tackle that credit card debt 
together and to take responsibility of that debt or for that debt together. When there's financial infidelity, if you have a secret credit card, a, a private bank account that, that she doesn't know about or he doesn't know about, how many of you know relationships are built on trust? And trust is something that is earned, it is gained over time. And I would just uh, submit to you that if you have to hide your credit card statement from your spouse, what else do you have to hide, right? I was talking with a friend one day, um, it was a Monday morning, and I went to work out, and he said, hey, I want to talk to you about your message on Sunday, and I said, what, what, what about, and he said, well, you know, you were talking about not having separate bank accounts and blah, 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 and he said, the thing is, is I, I've been married now for a few months, and when I come home from work, my mail that has my name on it has already been opened, and I said, but you, you're married, right, and he said, yes, and I said, so what's the problem? He said, well, it doesn't have her name on it. It has my name on it. And then she's opening my mail. And I said, so what? What's the problem? He said, well, it's my mail. And I said, well, not anymore. Can, can, I, let you in on a little, can I let you in on a little secret? That's not so much a secret. That, that when you get married, God's way, according to Scripture, two people become one. Two flesh become one. And so this might be a challenge for some, but, but you give up the argument that says, this is my money, I'm going to do with my money what I want it to do with my money, and you don't get to speak into that. It's not your money. It's our money. It belongs to both of you. And so I, I said, if, if, if you have something to hide, then fess up. You might want to have a conversation with your wife. He said, I don't. And so I said, then let her open your mail. Unless you have something to hide, it ought not really matter to you if she's opening your mail or not. When you have overextended your budget, that's cause for stress, right? That's going to cause anybody to stress. When there's an inability to compromise, like, like you don't want her opening your mail, that, that's, a, that's a problem. That's a problem. And all I know is, I'm going to say one more thing. All I know is, and I'm not completely against two, two bank accounts, and I think sometimes it might be smart as long as both parties have equal access and full visibility into those bank accounts, right? It's when you have one thing over here, and she's got one thing over there, and, and neither one of you know what's happening over here and over there, because all I know is this, secrets tend to grow the best in the dark. So you don't want any, any secrets, then just... Let there be visibility. Don't, don't, don't buy into the lie that, well, I made this and so it's mine and you make that and so it's yours. No, no, it, it is both of yours. You are married. You are one. When you make a major impulse purchase without consulting your spouse, that, that is a reason that a lot of people find conflict. And, and um, I, I've just, I've never quite understood that. I, I will tell my wife if I buy a pair of pants, like, like, and not because I have to, but I just, that's just how we roll. We talk a lot. And so I'm, I'm like, hey, I, I, I want to buy a pair of jeans. I know I've already got 18 stacked in the closet, but this one is just a different, slightly different shade than the other 18 that I have. And I need this pair. I really have to have it. When there are unexpected major expenses, now, that's going to cause anybody to stress, especially if you don't have the ability or you're not prepared to handle it. And then the last one, I love this, or actually second to last, when the cost of the wedding puts you further in debt. That's just dumb. Come on. And can I, can I just maybe just share some, an unpopular opinion for you, especially if you're not married yet. If you can't afford the wedding you want, then give yourself the wedding you need. 
because there are a lot of days that are going to come after your wedding day. Don't put yourself in debt just because you want to make that day great when every other day because you put yourself in debt is going to be hell on earth for you trying to dig yourself out of a hole for the rest of your life. Don't do that. Proverbs 21 says this, that a wise man saves for the future, but a foolish man spends whatever he gets, and he spends it all on the wedding day. And I'm a dad with two girls, so I know I'm going to have to probably pay most of that bill anyway, so y'all are definitely getting the wedding you need, because that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yep, we're going to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> drive through. That's how it's going to happen. Here's the last one. When you've not had pre-marriage financial counseling. I think that that's actually quite brilliant. We, we do pre-marriage counseling, and I'm actually not sure how much financial stuff goes into the pre-marriage stuff that we do, but we're going to need to figure that one out. These are the 10 most common ways that money affects divorce rates. And I'm, listen, I'm not divorce shaming anybody. I know there, there are many, many people in this room and who are watching. You've been divorced, maybe more than once, and there is grace for you. Amen? So I'm not, I'm not divorce shaming you. At all, but, but I would just say this, if, you, if you've not been divorced ever, find somebody that you know who has been divorced and ask them how much that costs them. Divorce is costly, amen? And it not, not just financially costly, but it's emotionally and spiritually and relationally costly, but it, it costs a lot financially as well. So let, let's talk about this and let's get on the same page and let's not have competing philosophies when it comes to money, especially if you're in a relationship and you say, I want to honor the Lord. We're going to honor God together. We're going to love Jesus with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's a good place to start in Matthew 22 and in Proverbs chapter 4, because if there's one thing that God desires most from all of us, it is this, that in Matthew 22, Jesus says this, that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. If there's one thing that God desires from you more than anything, it is your heart. And then he goes on in Proverbs chapter 4, it says this, And above all else, when it comes to all of the priorities in your life and of your life, the what, ought we need, what, what ought we be most focused on, concerned with, tuned into, God is saying above all else, what you need to guard is your heart. Because I desire your heart, and I want from you a pure heart, a free heart, a heart that is for me. For everything you do in life is going to flow from your heart. Amen? So I would just say, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today and wisdom to discern how to love you with heart, mind, soul, and strength and how to honor you financially and how to be blessed the way that you've called us to be blessed so that we would be a blessing to the world around us. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. amen. Now, according to Jesus, because we're talking about our heart, the number one competitor, according to Jesus, of our heart is money. And then that's an interesting thing to think about in Matthew 6 when, when Jesus could have, when looking at all of the different competing priorities in life, he, 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 he could have made a list and, and started listing out all of the potential competitors when it comes to our heart. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, for whatever reason, and likely because it's just 
the reason that it's true. Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then again, of all the potential issues that could come between you and the Lord, me and the Lord, our heart and God, Jesus says this, you cannot serve both God and money. If there's one thing that has the potential to replace God or to become the thing in your life that you'll be most tempted to live for or to rely on according to Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the one who knows all things. He sees all things from from whom nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth is hidden. Amen. Like he's He's wise, he's wisdom, he's the word. And what Jesus is saying is when it comes to our heart, if there's going to be a greatest competitor, it's going to be money. Now, because you know the, the title of today's message and you, and you know the topic, you, you may be tempted to write this message off in one of two ways. First, if you're not in debt or if you already have a solid plan to take care of the debt that you have and to pay that debt down, you you might be tempted to think this message is for somebody else. Or if, if, if debt is not an issue, and you look at the other word that's in the title of this message, and it's the word greed, especially if you love Jesus, and because it is nearly impossible for us to see the greed issue in our own heart without some Holy Spirit conviction and help. Amen? So you love Jesus. Greed is hard to see in our own heart. You, you have compassion for hurting people. You have conviction in your heart to, to see those who don't know Christ come to know Christ. You have care and concern in your heart for those who, who are just hurting in life, because of that, you may be tempted to think that this message is not for you. And in particular, when we think about greed, we tend to think about greed by comparing ourselves to that penny-pinching, mean, manipulating, selfish, Scrooge-like kind of greedy character. And because most of us can look at ourselves in the mirror and say confidently, that's not who we are. Because we feel empathy, we do care for people, we do value generosity, and we do believe in the only mission that matters, and that is making heaven full. And so because we don't look like Scrooge, this might not be an issue that we need to really think about. My challenge for all of us is this, that greed often disguises itself as a heart virtue rather than as a heart disease. Greed often disguises itself as a virtue, and I'm going to say it this way, particularly for those of us who are living here in the United States of America, where we as Americans spend more money annually on trash bags than half the world spends on all goods combined. And where one of the fastest growing industries in America is the self-storage industry, which basically means we've run out of room in the homes we've mortgaged and built to store up the things that we don't actually need. So we rent out additional storage units to manage our inventory. When the Bible talks about those who are rich in this present age, I, just, I need us all to acknowledge we need to perk up just a little bit and pay attention For those of us who live here in America where even those who are considered poor, when you compare American poverty to poverty in other parts of the world where people are living 
without a single food pantry or dream center kitchen or homeless shelter to turn to, there are none. Where, where those uh, people are living with no access to free health care like the poor in our city have access to, or no place to get cleaned up because there's no clean water, let alone to drink or shower in, or there's no place to grab a quick lunch to go like the poor in our city have opportunity to grab meals and, and food and even lunches to go and free health care and through the Dream Center and other ministries all across the city and all over the United States, you can go and, and you can get the resources and the help that you need. And I'm not discounting poverty here. I'm just saying when you, when you compare American poverty to, to poverty in other parts of the world, there's no comparison that we have more here at our disposal than any people who have ever lived in any nation and at any point in all the history of the world. We, we need to tune our ear to what the Bible has to say about money. Now, all that to say, does, does that make money a bad thing? It does not. The Bible does not tell us that money is the root of all evil. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so that we have been given much, that's nothing to feel bad about. And so I just want you to know this is also not a wealth-shaming message. God's blessing is not meant to cause you shame, embarrassment, or guilt. God doesn't bless you to break you. He blesses you to make you a blessing to the world around you. Can I get an amen? So I just want to make sure we're not wealth-shaming anybody. In fact, if you look at some of the greatest faith leaders in the Bible, Abraham was an abundantly wealthy man. He's considered the father of our faith. Job, he lost a lot. But let's just be honest, Job had a lot to lose. And then when God restores Job after his whole world comes crashing down, Job ends up with more than he had to begin with. God is not against wealth. He's not against wealthy people or wealthy nations. And we ought not feel guilty because of what we've been given by God. But let's not confuse not feeling guilty with ignoring and disregarding our God-given responsibility to be good stewards of what he's given us. Like, we, we have to be careful not to wealth shame. You, you ought not feel bad because of what God has given you, but that's not the same thing as go ahead and ignore the responsibility that we've been given to be good stewards of what we have. Let me say one more thing about this message. I'm just kind of setting it up, and, but don't worry, we'll end at the same time we always end. One more thing, this is not a socialist message either. And I think it's important to, to talk to these issues, especially in today's world, because we, we hear the word fair being thrown around a lot. Like if everyone could just have the same thing, that would be real nice. But, but according to the Bible, look, fair is not impartial. Let me ask you if this sounds fair. Matthew 25, Jesus is telling the story of three servants who are each entrusted a share of their master's estate to steward, and to one, he gives five bags of gold, to another, he gives two bags, and to another, one bag. That doesn't sound fair, but it is fair. Why? Because to each, he was given according to his ability to steward that which he'd been given. 
Doesn't sound fair if you just look at it at face value, but then when you get to the last, what, five words, each according to his ability, God is not a socialist where everybody gets the same look around you. That is clearly not the way the world works, amen? Even when it comes to spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God gives spiritual gifts to the church that will be for the common good of all the church, but he does not give equally to everybody in the church. He gives spiritual gifts to each according as he sees fit. Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, the poor you will always have with you. Now, that doesn't absolve our responsibility and our duty to serve the poor. It just means don't fall for the lie that says if we could just evenly distribute everything to everybody, then we're going to somehow solve the poverty problem. Good stewardship is not blind stewardship. Just in the same way, you're not going to go out and just find some random man on the street and say, here's half of my wealth. Could you go ahead and and, and see what you can do with it? Invest this for me. If you're going to trust somebody to invest what you've been given by God, you're going to kind of sort some things out before you hand over what you've been given. It might be fair to just go out on the street and find the first person you you run into and say, hey, be my money manager, but, but nobody would be that dumb. I just want to make sure we understand the difference between feeling guilty for what we've been given by God and also the responsibility that we've been given to be good stewards of what God has entrusted us with. Jesus in Luke chapter 12, he says this, from everyone who has been given much, much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. He's not saying you need to feel bad, you need to feel guilty, there needs to be shame. That's the socialistic spirit that's alive in our world today. It's like it's a wealth-shaming spirit, a tearing-down spirit that ignores the, 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 the stewardship and the responsibility that we have to honor God with what we've been given and to make much with what we've been given. If you want to know well, where, where does that word stewardship come from, it, it comes from, from the, 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 the word, and this is a theme throughout the entire scripture, beginning in Psalm 24, or you could actually go all the way back to Genesis 1, but I'm going to read just a few verses. Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas. In the beginning, God created, he established it on the waters. You didn't make the world. God made the world. He owns the world and everybody who lives in it. It all belongs to the Lord. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord God Almighty. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of, not my hands, his hands. And you may say to yourself at times that that my power and my strength and my hands have produced this wealth for me, but, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So this idea of stewardship is this, that everything belongs to God, and and I am a steward, a manager of that which belongs to him. And that includes my own body, my own mind, my own heart and soul. Do you not know that even your bodies are temples of the Spirit of God who is in you, whom you have received from the Lord, that you are not your own, that you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with 
your bodies. You see, it's a challenge for us, especially those of us who are living here in the United States. We're living the American dream, which is so ingrained in our thinking that rarely do we ever think twice about whether or not the American dream is actually wholly consistent with our faith values and with our godly goals, or whether or not some of the American dream may even be harmful to us at times. And to you and me, Jesus is saying this in Luke chapter 15, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I know you don't think of yourself as that Scrooge-like greedy character, and maybe you're not that kind of greedy, but, but be on your guard because there are, there's more than one kind of greed that can take root in your heart, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I wonder what Jesus might say to the church of 2023 in Columbus, Ohio, where we can't at times, if we're honest, be quite prone to confuse our self-God-given worth with our net worth. Where where we can be quick at times to measure our God-given value against the valuables that we have stored up. When according to Jesus, it is not what we have that matters most, but what we do with what we have. Amen? Amen. It's not what I have that matters most. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. It's not what I have that matters most. It's what I do with what I have. And that's because the ultimate value of our lives is determined not by what we've gained, but by what we've given. I know I walked through those pretty quick, so do gain and give. Those are the fill-ins, and it's in that order. The more you do, the more you gain, and the more you have to give. And the ultimate value of our lives is determined not by what we've gained, but by what we have given. This is why the apostle Paul, when he's instructing a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says this, command those who are rich in this present world And all of us perk up and we start paying attention. Command them not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but command them to put their hope in God, in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Because in this way, they will lay up for themselves treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. And I think if we're willing to be honest both with ourselves and before God, there ought to be a certain level of conviction felt in all of us as it relates to this. And and it would not be a terrible thing for all of us to be reminded every once in a while of the lies that we are so prone to believe that run countercultural to the gospel. Lives like this one that says, the more that I have, the more secure I'll be. The more that I have, the more secure I'll be when Proverbs 18, 11 says, what a dreamer you are, the rich man who thinks that his wealth is an impregnable defense, a high wall of safety. 
Those who depend on their wealth will fall like the leaves of, of autumns. Not, 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 not those who are wealthy, but those who depend on their wealth. When we long to be rich, we fall prey to temptation. Not, not when we are rich. When we, when we long to be rich, we get trapped into all sorts of foolishness and dangerous ambitions, which eventually plunge us into ruin. When we believe the lie that says, the more I have, the more satisfied I'll be. Because if that were true, the happiest people on earth would be the wealthiest people on earth. And yet we know that the reverse is often true. And if having more would mean more satisfaction, would it be said of the most prosperous nation in the history of the world with more wealth than any nation has ever had ever? Would it be equally at the same time said that we are the most despondent and depressed, the most anxious and confused, the most worried and medicated If this is what our wealth has gained us, a wayward, restless, confused, unsatisfied generation, then we must admit when we have been wrong and be quick to course correct. Amen? We must acknowledge that it is is better to be satisfied with what we have than to constantly be striving for more. And the reason is, according to Proverbs chapter 23, 7 verse 20 is that human desires are like the world of the dead. There is always room for more. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 and 11, he who loves money will never have enough. Not he who has money, he who loves money will never have enough. The foolishness of thinking that wealth brings happiness. The more you have, the more you spend, right up to the limits of your income. So what is the advantage of wealth except perhaps to watch it as it runs through your fingers? Said Solomon, who is not only the wisest man ever to live, but the wealthiest man ever to live. Or that the more I have means the more important I'll be. When again, Jesus clearly says this in Luke 12, a man's real life in no way depends upon the number of his possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Yet we're so prone because we live in this American dream to constantly be comparing ourselves with others and we're constantly in pursuit of more. We're not always the best stewards of what we have. So what's the cure? Because I think it's quite natural to want to be secure. I I think it's quite normal to want to be satisfied and even to want to be important or to do something that matters, something that's important. And so if you want to be secure, and if you want to be satisfied, and if you want to be important, I want you to compare Jesus' financial advice in Matthew 6 to the story that he tells in Matthew 25. Where in Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That doesn't sound secure to me. If you want to be secure, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this runs countercultural to, to the way we naturally think, but according to the word of God, if you want to be secure, be a giver, be generous, and live life with an open hand. 
These two principles Jesus teaches us from that passage. The first is that money has the power and the potential to direct and to redirect the only thing that matters to God, my heart, your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where your treasure is, that's an indication of where your heart is. And where your treasure goes, that's an indication as to where your heart will be next. So if we desire to, in our heart, to truly care about what matters most, then we will invest in what matters most. And the, 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 the easiest way I, I can think to break this down, how do I invest in heaven? It's, it's like this. Invest in what's going to be in heaven. <laughs> what, was, what was made by God to last forever? His kingdom. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Amen? Amen. Of the reign of Jesus, there will be no end. And you and me, we were made by God to live forever, either with him in his presence forever or apart from him forever. It's, it's one or two options. And if I'm going to invest in making heaven full, I'm going to find ways to invest where I know that my investment is leading people who are lost into relationship with Jesus so I get to be with them in heaven. That's the only thing that matters. The second thing Jesus is teaching us in this passage is that what I invest in eternity is the only truly secure investment that I will ever make. It's the only investment that will outlast and outlive all of the broken and feeble and temporary markets of this world. Another bank crashed in Silicon Valley this week. And you know what? A lot of people who lost their money, they're not going to see that money again. And that's why Jesus is saying there's something more to live for than earthly temporary investments that can be taken from you so quickly. And the only way to truly be secure is to live your life with an open hand. Because to live life with a closed fist is, again, back to that story in Matthew 25, those three servants that were entrusted, each according to his ability. The first two came back. They took that investment, and they held it with an open hand, and they, they made something of it. They, they made more with it, and they came back to the master, and they said, look what we've done. We took what you gave us. We made something more out of it, and they're commended. And they're celebrated. But the one who was given the least, he, he held on to what he was given with the closed fist. The Bible says he actually buried it in the ground. He was so concerned about, about losing it. He held on to it so tightly. And when the master came back to see what he'd done with what he'd been given, he said, I, 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 I hid it. I didn't do anything with it. But, but here you can go ahead and have it back. And the master literally condemns the man and sends him away. Why? Because living life with an open hand is better. It is better, said Jesus, of you and me to give than to receive. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, not hold on to, but with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And again, these are the words of Jesus. Because not only does generosity have the power to break the chokehold of greed off of our life, but it has the power to unleash the insurmountable blessing of God in our lives. Read those passages again and again and again. Look at the promise. Listen to the intensity that Jesus is talking about, our wealth. 
And if that's not enough when it comes to the tithe, when we set aside the first tenth of what God has given us and we bring that back to God, when, when we look at the incredible principle and promise and challenge God gives us when it comes to the tithe, where he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, test me in this. Because I know it's not going to make sense to you. Test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And see how I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruits, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land. And I know it tends to get quiet when, when, when the tithe is mentioned, even in the church, and I'll never understand it, but my, my only explanation is this, that, that you're never going to understand the power of the tithe and the principle and how it works until you choose to put it to work in your life. Amen. That's why God says, test me and see. And I believe it's one of the most important decisions that you could ever make if you want to be married or if you are married. And that is that we're going to honor God with our wealth and we're going to tithe first and we're going to give to God what belongs to him. When I was talking to my wife about the message this week and I said, I think it's one of the most important decisions we've, we've ever made. She said, I, I think it's the most important decision we have ever made in our marriage and I thought to myself, well, wouldn't the most important decision in our marriage be that we're going we're gonna to always put God first? And I was reminded of Deuteronomy 14 that says this, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. Hallelujah. My wife said, if you just look at the protection and the blessing of God on our family, on our home, on our children. I will never regret putting God first. It is the most important decision we have ever made. And if you don't quite understand what that looks like, it looks like this. This is a chart I love to show because it's a chart. It has 20 dots. And every dot, if you just consider this, this is your life. You are the dots. And every dot on the chart represents a dollar in your hand. This is the totality of your wealth. And every gray dot you keep for you, it's for your enjoyment. You do what you want to do with it. But if you want to know what the tithe looks like, it looks like this. Those are the two red dots. That's the tithe. Two and 20, one and 10, three and 30. Percentage-wise, it's the same whether you have a lot or you have a little. The principle remains the same. And I, I would just challenge you when we, when we hear a verse like Paul tells Timothy to command those who are rich in this present world to be generous and willing to share. When I look at this chart and I, I ask myself if this represents a person's wealth, the totality of what a person has, and if, and if what they give are those two red dots, do I think that that's an overwhelmingly generous person? I'm just not sure many people would look at that and say, that's generosity. There's not a line that's given, so I don't know what the line is. I don't know what it looks like to be generous. I think that's a walk that we have to figure out between our, our own self and the Lord. Like, I need to understand what that looks like for me, and you need to understand what that looks like for you. But what this looks like to God is obedience, and he always blesses obedience. Amen? Amen. He always blesses obedience. And when you give God the first according to the word, his promise is, I will bless the rest. 
And you will never be more secure. If you're after security, you will never be more secure than when you've got the guaranteed blessing of God on everything in your life. And you'll never be more satisfied than when you live an open-handed life. You'll never be more satisfied than when you serve the least and spend yourself on behalf of those who are hurting. For is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, says the Lord? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is not what I desire to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Watch this. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call upon the Lord and he'll answer you and you will call for help and God will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing finger and malicious talk and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noon day and the Lord will guide you always and he will satisfy your needs and he will strengthen your frame and you will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail I love the promise of God. And in a church like this, there are a thousand and one ways for you to engage and to, to serve on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday on any and every day of the week. Join a ministry team. Get in a small group. Show up a half hour early and open doors. Take an hour in your week and help us prepare for the next service. Spend one night a week and serve a meal through the Dream Center. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Take a few hours a week and be a youth volunteer and invest in the next generation. Serve as a kids volunteer. Join the prayer team. Visit a prison. Church, you will never be more alive than when you're worshiping on death row with those who are on death row encountering the power and the presence of Jesus through a church that shows up. Get outside your comfort zone and do something for somebody that has some sort of heavenly and eternal significance attached to it. And if you want to be important, then go and tell everybody you know about the good news we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Because there's nothing more important than to go and tell if you really want to break the power of greed in your life, then, then just understand the difference between greed and generosity. Greed is when we use others in an attempt to gain a greater blessing for ourselves. But generosity is when we use what we have been given and we even use ourselves to be a blessing to the world around us. 
And what greater blessing can we be to the world around us than to give the world around us the opportunity to encounter Jesus? Because how then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard of? And how can they hear of the one without somebody preaching the one to them? And how can they preach the one unless they themselves have been sent? As it is written, how beautiful, how important, how necessary are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus could have chosen to do this work all by himself but he chose to leave the unfinished work, the most important work to you and to me. And nothing is more important than our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers coming into relationship with Jesus because only Jesus has power to save, to heal, to forgive, to set free. And only Jesus in his hand holds the key to heaven and eternal life. For Jesus said this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father in heaven except through me. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And there is no more important word or gift than that. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. I told you this isn't a financial message. It's not a marriage message. It's really a stewardship message. It's a values message. It's a heart's message. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak, convict, comfort, heal, minister to, challenge each one of us. Give us what we need. Not just what we want. Give us what we need. Would you stir us to greater devotion? Would you stir us to greater generosity? Would you stir us to greater compassion for the lost and the hurting around us? And would you use us to make a difference, to make heaven full, Lord, for those who are here and many here right now and watching from afar might say, I don't know that I've been saved. I don't know that I'm on my way to heaven. I don't know that I've been forgiven. Your word says this, that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. So I'm going to invite you, if you want to be saved, you want to be forgiven, would you pray this prayer with me right now? Say, Jesus, I need you. I trust you as Lord and Savior of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me through and through. and Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Would you use my life to make a difference in other lives? Would you use me to lead the people that I love into relationship with you. Just like I now am being led into relationship with you. You who died for me, you who were raised from death to life for me, and have given me now eternal life, salvation, forgiveness. And it is in Jesus' name, everybody said.